This episode was made possible by the generous support of listeners like you. For more information, please visit patreon.com slash author Chris Lester. I strive to make this podcast a safe and inclusive place for my listeners. If I've missed any content warnings, please let me know. Content warnings for this episode include Mature Themes You're listening to The Raven and the Writing Desk, the weekly podcast about the writings of Chris Lester and Liminal Corvid Press. This is episode 319. Greetings, listeners. Welcome back to The Raven and the Writing Desk. I'm your host, Chris Lester, the creator of the Metamore City story universe. You can learn more about me and my work at chrislester.org and metamorecity.com. This is the show where I share my fresh new fiction with you and tell you the latest on my life and my writing. More about that later in the show. For now, let's get to this week's story. Today I'm bringing you Chapter 2 of Honor Bound by L.C. Williams. In last week's episode, we were introduced to Honor Hinbelview, the only daughter of a country baron from a minor noble house. It's the night of the debutante's ball, when all the new members of the Metamore nobility will be welcomed into the peerage as adults. Tonight is the night that Honor becomes a woman. Honor's lady's maid, Mabel, presented her with a gift to mark the occasion a beautiful jeweled amulet in the shape of a butterfly. The necklace once belonged to Honor's mother, the Lady Sylvia Hinchastain, a notorious figure in the Metamore peerage. When Honor was just three years old, Lady Sylvia left her husband for a foreign lover, abandoning her duties to house and family. Honor's father was granted a divorce in her absence, and Lady Sylvia was excoriated, stripped of her titles, her dowry, and even her family name. Honor never saw or heard from her mother again, but apparently Sylvia left instructions for Mabel to give this amulet to Honor when she came of age. Understandably, Honor felt conflicted about this. Still, it was a very pretty amulet, and the gift represented a crumb of thoughtfulness toward the daughter that Sylvia had abandoned. Honor asked if her father knew about the gift, and Mabel confessed that she'd told him about it ages ago. He said it was Honor's birthright, and that he would not be the one to take it from her. Then I shall wear it, Honor said, and smiled. Honor Bound The House of Bellevue Book One Written by L.C. Williams Narrated by Vivian Ferrari Chapter 2. Cravats and Cosmetics Natasha Volkova awoke to the shadowy remnants of her usual nightmares. Her legs were tangled up in something, and for a moment she was sure that it was barbed wire, that she was back at the Battle of Havane, that she had been caught out in no man's land with rifle bullets and sorcerous fireballs whipping past her on all sides— she kicked herself free of the bedsheets and lay sprawling, gasping for breath. Her heart pounded against her chest like the soldier's feet on the parade ground. Thump, thump. Thump, thump. 
and with every blow her head responded with a twinge of pain. A film of cold sweat clung to her everywhere, and she shivered. She pressed her hands to her face, pushed away a tangle of straw-blonde hair, and let out a long, shaky breath. Pleat, she cursed. Chertova Nichti. Damned dreams. After a moment, she swung her legs off the bed and sat up. She half expected to find herself in the barracks again, but no. This was her own private room at Hassan Manor, the same room she had woken up in every day for the last six months. Well, not every day. There had been a few memorable nights with the sensualist, Josephina, and that one time with the barmaid whose name Natasha could not recall. But as strange as it still felt, this was home. Not that Natasha was quite sure what home meant anymore. You are not soldier any longer, she reminded herself. Just one simple guard in nobleman's house, and you are damned lucky to have that much. There were thousands of men and women like her who had never left Havane. They made their beds in the poppy fields, asleep forever in the cold ground. Natasha rose and opened the curtains on the room's one small window, looking out over the grounds of the Duke's estate. Late afternoon light slanted across the gardens, where the tulips were blooming in a brilliant array of reds, oranges, and yellows, accented by the soft purple blooms of lilac trees. Tall hedges and twenty-foot stone walls formed a screen against the bustle and clamor of the city outside. The grounds were small compared to the lord's estates in her homeland of Yeshrad, barely more than two acres, and most of that taken up by the mansion itself, but in the tight confines of the Metamore Valley, it was an extravagant use of space. And all this for a man who does not rule, Natasha thought. For a man who will not even call himself king. She snorted and shook her head at the irony, then immediately wished she hadn't. Her head continued throbbing in a low, steady drumbeat. She cursed the bottle of whiskey hidden in her dresser drawer and not for the first time. She had the feeling she was forgetting something, and the hangover wasn't helping. Natasha headed down the hall to the washroom she shared with her fellow guards. A few other members of the night shift were already there, shaving in the mirrors or scrubbing themselves under the communal shower heads. She stripped off her chemise and drawers, tossed them in a laundry basket, and went to the shower at the back of the room. She could sense the eyes of some of her comrades on her, the lust and fear that she inspired in equal measure. At six feet tall, with a warrior's physique and blonde hair that fell to the middle of her back, Natasha was impressive as hell. And she knew it. She also knew that she could break any one of these men in half if they ever tried to touch her without her permission. More importantly, they knew it. Everyone on staff had heard rumors about why she had been discharged. Natasha had it on good authority that Major Rutgers was still drinking his meals through a straw. She lathered, rinsed, and washed her hair with swift military efficiency, wrapped one towel around her hair and another around her torso, then went to the guard's dressing room. It was a bit like a large locker room, with rows of long benches and tall skinny mirrors, 
but the racks and drawers full of clean clothing were all communal, neatly organized by size. Like most everything here, the guards' clothing belonged to the Duke, not to the guards themselves. One of Natasha's comrades was inside, a short and stocky Arambian woman named Irene Ndiaye. She had on her dress uniform, a showier garment than the blue and red livery that was typically worn by the Duke's household staff. This version added gold braiding and lots of shiny brass buttons to the jacket, a white silk cravat held in place with a gold pin, and glossy black patent leather riding boots. Currently, Irene was standing before one of the mirrors, locked in a pitched battle with the cravat, one that she seemed to be losing. She nodded to Natasha's reflection as she walked in, and Natasha returned the gesture. You need hand? she asked. Natasha usually said as little as possible to the other members of the staff, but Irene had always been decent to her, and did not seem to mind her thickly accented common. Please, and thank you, Irene said, the relief evident in her voice. Natasha stepped up in front of her, removed the cravat pin, and began carefully folding the strip of cloth into an artful collection of loops and ruffles. She'd always been more comfortable with masculine clothing than with gowns and dresses, and her hands moved without conscious effort. Duke is receiving guests tonight, she asked. The dress uniforms didn't usually get taken out unless something special was happening. Irene laughed. <laughs> yes, just a few. Natasha looked at her quizzically. She didn't think she'd said anything funny. Irene's expression turned to confusion, and then to dismay. Nat, didn't anyone tell you? A prickle of worry ran down the back of her neck. Tell me what? The ball. When this elicited no sudden comprehension, Irene sighed and rubbed the bridge of her nose. The debutante's ball? Where all the noble families will be presenting their children who've come of age, so they can all see who's ready to get married off? The first big event of the season? Please tell me you've heard about this. Natasha furrowed her brow and tried to remember. The captain of the guard had told her a lot of things when she started here, six months ago, and what Irene was describing sounded vaguely familiar. But Natasha wasn't from Metamore, and many things that the locals took for granted were strange and new for her. Lift up chin, she said. Irene did so, and Natasha slid the cravat pin into place. She made a few final adjustments to the folds of the garment, then stepped back and nodded in satisfaction. Irene looked in the mirror, smiled at Natasha's work. Thanks, hon. Now hurry up and get dressed. We're going to need all hands tonight. Natasha went over to the drawers and pulled out undergarments in her size. Dress uniform? she asked just to be sure she understood. Yes. To Natasha's relief, Irene didn't sound irritated. That was good. Natasha irritated enough people already. She quickly put on drawers, socks, and chemise, then went to the racks and found her dress uniform, which was hers only because she was the only woman in the guard who was tall enough to wear it. There were several men's uniforms of comparable size, but they were cut differently, and 
and she would have had to bind her breasts in order to fit into them. She had done that sort of thing before, in other contexts, but she was glad to be working in a place where she didn't have to. So why does Duke need so many of us for ball? Natasha asked. Noble's children do not seem dangerous. Irene was over at the mirror again, applying makeup from a small kit in a polished wooden box. That must be one of her personal possessions. Natasha couldn't imagine that the Duke had any cosmetics that were suited to the woman's dark brown skin. They are mostly a danger to themselves, Irene said. This is their first social event as adults. Many of them have never drunk anything stronger than small beer. They are looking for partners they may wish to marry, or that their parents may wish them to marry. Some decide that dancing and conversation aren't the best ways to choose a likely candidate. Ah, Natasha said, nodding. I see. They will sneak off into house to fuck. Irene's hand spasmed, sending a streak of eyeliner across her nose and forehead. She barked a laugh. <laughs> Gods, Nat, don't talk like that during the ball. You're not in the army anymore, hon. Natasha held up one of the ridiculously impractical shiny leather boots. One actual horse ride, and they'd be scuffed beyond repair. So I keep telling myself, she sighed. Besides, Irene said, the debutantes aren't the ones I'm worried about. It's the party crashers. Natasha frowned. Party crashers. She knew what the words party and crash meant separately, but... Uninvited people who sneak in, Irene clarified. Mostly pickpockets and other petty criminals. A ball full of rich, drunk adolescents is a tempting target. There will be a lot of people here who haven't met before, so they'll have an easier time blending in. Especially if they're young and can disguise themselves among the debutantes. It's happened more often than you might think. Natasha nodded slowly. So, look for people acting suspicious, or in places they should not be. Exactly. Natasha smiled. I can do that. She finished lacing her boots, then went and sat down in front of one of the mirrors. As she put on her own cravat, Irene came behind her and brushed out her hair. She pulled it into a tight double braid, then tied off the resulting tail with a blue and red ribbon. It was a more ornate hairdo than she usually bothered with, but given that the Duke wanted them in dress uniforms, she supposed that it was appropriate. Thank you, she said, as Irene finished. She studied the Arambian woman's makeup in the mirror. Irene's cosmetics had softened the lines of her face, making her look gentler and more feminine than Natasha was used to. Normally that wasn't a priority for a member of the house guard, but she was getting the impression that this ball was a different sort of event. Natasha looked back at her own reflection. The braid had accentuated her sharp cheekbones and the strong lines of her jaw, giving her a hard, severe look. Her stone-gray eyes looked small, cold, and remote in her pale-skinned face. Should I? She gestured vaguely toward her own head. Irene smiled patiently. Let me, 
she said. She pulled a different box of cosmetics from another drawer and quickly went to work. She softened the harsh angles of Natasha's face with foundation, used rouge to add a touch of color to her cheeks, added lip gloss to make her mouth look fuller and more feminine. Smoky eyeshadow and a little mascara gave her eyes an arresting look, making their stormy gray look compelling and mysterious instead of merely cold. Natasha stared at her own reflection in amazement. What do you think? Irene asked, her teeth flashing a brilliant white. I look beautiful, Natasha said, wonderingly. Nat, you are beautiful, Irene said. Terrifying, but beautiful. Natasha grinned at that. With the makeup, it looked more like a smile and less like baring her teeth. Thank you, she said again. You're very welcome, Irene said. Now let's move. The guests will be arriving soon. And that's the end of Chapter 2. Come back next time when we'll meet some more members of House Bellevue, including the Baron himself. Chapters of the House of Bellevue will be released once per week for 51 weeks. If you are enjoying this story and want to listen to it faster, the entire series is available now at Amazon and Audible. To learn more about these characters and their world, visit www.authorlcwilliams.com. Letty Prell said, I must write now and quickly, before I begin to prefer the perfect version that lives in my head. So, let's see what came out of my head this week. It's time for the weekly writing report. This update covers the week of March 5th through March 11th. I wrote 2,950 words this week, over the course of five hours, for an average writing speed of 590 words per hour. I wrote on four out of seven days this week. This week I turned my attention to a task that is, for me, one of the hardest parts of being a writer. Marketing. With the launch of the Honor series just days away, it was time to get my mailing list up and running. I use MailChimp to administer the Elsie Williams mailing list, and it has a lot of cool features to help manage the process, including automated journeys that take new subscribers through a series of messages to judge their interest and engagement. But that means that I have to write a bunch of messages at once to map everything out. And if you've been a member of the Metamore City mailing list, you'll know that communicating regularly is something I have sort of a hard time with. Speaking of which, I also wrote a message for the Metamore City mailing list to let them know about the new series coming out under the new pen name. Most of my time and energy for writing this week went into getting this stuff set up and running. I did get a few hundred words written on Out of the Shadows this week. That's not great, but it is something. I'm at a spot in my outline where my ideas were pretty sketchy and indistinct, so I need to decide if I should flesh this part out or just do the minimum needed to get to the next part of the story. Hopefully I'll have some time this weekend to rest and think about this more deeply. I've been a little short on sleep lately, so I feel like my brain has not been at its sharpest. 
The manuscript is a little over 13,000 words. Over on the Patreon feed, we have two new annual patrons this week, Shannon and Blue Elf Designs. If you like what I'm doing on this show, becoming a patron is the very best way to support me. Your monthly or annual pledges help pay for things like web hosting, podcast distribution, and the aforementioned mailing list. Subscribe at the $3 a month level or higher, and you'll get access to the first drafts of my stories as I'm writing them, as well as sneak peeks, cover reveals, character bios, and other cool stuff. Plus, all patrons get access to exclusive bonus art, from talented Metamore City artists like Ben Clifford and Carol Foote. To get started, go to patreon.com slash author Chris Lester. Take a look at the donation tiers and choose the one that's right for you. Prepay for a year's access and you'll get one month for free. And if you're already a patron, thank you so much for your support. I couldn't do this without you. If you'd like to share your thoughts about the show, send your feedback in text or audio to metamorecityfeedback at gmail.com. To leave a voicemail, dial area code 641-715-3900, then enter extension 255-082, followed by the pound sign. My Facebook is facebook.com slash author Chris Lester. The fan group is fans of Metamore City on Facebook, and our Discord server is Metamore City. I'm there pretty often, so come say hi. If you like this show, please consider leaving a review at Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or Podchaser.com. It really helps people find the show. That's all for this week. I'll be back next time with more fresh new fiction. Until then, keep it on the bright side. This is Chris Lester, signing out. The contents of this podcast are copyright 2022 by Chris Lester and Liminal Corvette Press. The show is released under a Creative Commons, attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives license. So don't change it, don't sell it, but feel free to share it all you like. For more information about this license, please visit creativecommons.org.